Lord God, we are grateful for the work you have called these women and men to do. As all vocations, we recognize that the work of teaching begins with you. You have been the very first and the very best teacher. And so we ask that these men and women who give their lives to helping to shape the next generation would receive your wisdom and your energy for this good and holy and incredibly hard work that they do. We ask, Lord, that you would enable them, empower them, and energize them to be your ambassadors of justice, of reconciliation, of hope, of peace, even of transformation in their classrooms, in their offices, in their hallways. We know that they are often faced with incredible challenges as they hear stories of their students' lives, as they are faced with um, a lot more need than they have resource. And we ask, Lord, that you would multiply and provide for what they need. As we are in a new school year, we ask, Lord, that you would bless and multiply the works of their hands and that the students who come through their office doors or walk through their hallways or sit in their classrooms would receive good gifts because they are present. And we pray, Lord, that these educators would see glimmers of the fruit that is to come and the lives of the students that they interact with on a daily basis. We pray that you would encourage our friends. We pray that you would empower our friends. And we pray that you would call us to stand in the gap for them, to encourage them, to pray for them, to lift them up. And for all of us, Lord, as we continue in worship and hear uh, the words that you have for us, we pray that our hearts would be tuned in to hear your words. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for study. We thank you for generations of the church who have sought you hard and long. And we thank you that we can stand on the shoulders of many to understand and to uh, begin to see that which is really mysterious, which is your love and your grace. And so we ask now that our imaginations would be open to you, that our ears would be able to hear, and that our hearts would be able to respond to your good words for us this evening. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 1, and I have some friends who have Bibles, but we're going to do something just a little bit different. If you don't have a Bible, I just want you to raise your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible if you need one for the evening. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and uh, you can just put your thumb in it if you would like. I want you to listen to the passage more than I want you to read the passage with me this evening. So usually our friends have Bibles. If you need one, hold your hand up uh, and that, so that you might be able to reference it throughout the evening. Um, but usually I read out of the New Living Translation, and this evening I will be reading out of the New uh, International Version. So I want you to listen 
to what this version has to say. At our church, we honor the reading of God's Word by standing, and so I want to invite you to do that uh, even this evening. For the next few weeks, we are going to be talking together. Uh, We're going to be doing a series in this ordinary time called Women in the Movement of God. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, no other, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of God for the people of God, so we say thanks be to God, I guess. You may be seated. That's a very good question for us all today. If you are a uh, if you are a kindergartner through fifth grade and you are a part of our service here, we have some people who uh, are taking kids down to a children's sermon, and so you can head there right now. But the question Tanner asks us is one that uh, that we must complicate, compli- excuse me, contemplate together. So my friend Dan Boone writes in his book A Charitable Discourse. Women's issues in America have a long history. Education, the right to vote, equal pay, protection under law from domestic violence, double standards in sexual behavior, economic exploitation, Title IX sports issues, political office, glass ceilings and corporate businesses, sexual discrimination, sexual harassment, priesthood, ministry, and the military. There are lots of issues. And if you travel to other places in the world, he said, the list gets longer. The right to go out in public to show her face, to speak to a man, to learn to read, sterilization, the murder of female babies, rape, slavery, and forced prostitution. The way of women in this world has not been easy. A few months ago, women began to hashtag the phrase Me Too as a way to identify with others on social media and be able to share their own tragic stories of being harassed, bullied, manipulated, and even assaulted. 
So this, this speaking up revival that the Me Too, the hashtag Me Too movement has given many women uh, and girls the courage to call out, not just communities where they live, but they've, it's given them the courage to call out even church communities. And many would testify that the church has been the cultural and the theological center for misogyny and prejudice. In May this year, Beth Moore, who's a who's a conservative Bible teacher, a very popular Bible teacher and public speaker, wrote an open letter to her brothers and posted it on her blog. In it, she described the criticism that she's received, particularly in the Christian world, not because she is a public figure and not because she lacks theological education, but because of her gender. She said, about a year ago, I had an opportunity to meet a theologian that I respected. I read virtually every book he'd written. I looked so forward to getting to share a meal and talk theology with him. The instant I met him, he looked me up and down, smiled approvingly, and said, you're better looking, and then he filled in the blank. She said, it's for this reason and many others that she, that she describes in her open letter that she writes, this is where I have to cry foul and not for my own sake. Most of my life is behind me, and I do this for the sake of my gender, for the sake of our sisters in Christ, and for the sake of other female, female leaders who, have, who will be faced with similar challenges. I do this for the sake of my brothers, uh, because Christ-likeness is at stake, and many of you are in positions to foster Christ-likeness in your sons and the men under your influence. The dignity with which Christ treated women in the Gospels is fiercely beautiful, and it was not conditional upon them understanding their place. Beth Moore describes in this letter the injustices that women have faced for generations in the Christian world. And I want to let you know I admire her courage. But unfortunately, her experience is not isolated. And truth be told, the church has been a cultural centerpiece of oppression and even abuse. For generations, there's been this patriarchal ethos that has established a culture of sexism in a variety of forms. In my own experience, I have been in meetings in churches and have seen men, even those in leadership and those who are ordained, talk down to a woman unnecessarily and continually interrupting her while displaying an air of dominance and physical aggression, and it came complete with his own assumption that he was all-knowing on the particular subject that she was trying to address. I I watched in seminary as some of my classmates who were male stole from their female classmates and claimed their ideas as their own. I saw a man in a position of power laughingly make comments to a group of people about what a woman who was standing next to him, who was an ordained elder, what she looked like, while she stood there and he was completely unaware of the fact that he was humiliating her, or he just didn't care. And I have heard... I have heard of male ministry students in college as young as 18 years old sexually harass their female classmates in order to run them out of their classes. God help me if I have ever treated my sisters this way. And sisters, forgive me for the times when I have not spoken up. In some church cultures, there's this prevalent theory, albeit sometimes unspoken, 
that there are women who are trying to seek control over men and gain the upper hand, so they must be put in their place. In other church cultures, the theory is that women are the weaker sex and are fragile creatures that need to be protected and supported and adored. It is their job to provide the love necessary to make a man's life complete, Jerry Maguire. And in still other church cultures, everyday slights and snubs or insults uh, that are either verbal or nonverbal, intentional or unintentional, communicate messages to women and girls in a negative and hostile way. And in the worst cases, and you've read about some of this on the news, some churches even evoke a rape culture whereby language or touching or even sexual violence is permitted or when it happens, it's covered up. It's a culture that condones physical and emotional terrorism uh, of women and it becomes the norm in that culture. It's, a, it's the kind of culture that King David cultivated prior to his encounter with Bathsheba. When the church is... Male dominant. It is, it's a reflection of the way the world is. It's, it's broken. The fact of the matter is, when we look at this text, a plain sense reading of this text, and, and, and we look at a couple others that are, that are attributed to Paul, it seems like he's opened the door for misogyny and prejudice and even abuse. So with these concerns, I think it's necessary and I think it's even biblical to make space and have a holy conversation about these issues. This allows us to tell the truth about our collective and individual negative contributions to an ethos like this, and it also helps us to move forward so that we can seek a redeeming redeeming way forward. So I want to ask this question how do we deal with the issues that are in this text and, and maybe a few others that are like it? And how do we deal with these issues and what it seems that they have created for the church? So in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this. This is really good news for us. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ You've clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we are, when we are baptized into Christ, we, we are a new creation. Something happens in us. Those who have been baptized can talk about this. But it's not just something that happens to us. When we are baptized, we also project and, and demonstrate the hope of new creation for the whole world. In other, world, in other words, when we're baptized, it's like a message to everyone who is around us. The world is not going to be like it is forever. Our baptism means that we have received full inclusion into the family of God. Our adoption is as sons and daughters, and it is sealed in the baptism waters. And in this family, through the Spirit of God, Christ is making everything new. But then you have 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it seems that it seems a little bit different than Galatians chapter 3. It's a head-scratcher. So, man, reading through this passage at face value, it seems that, that God is just giving complete authority over to men. And some, in all fairness, honestly approach the Bible this way with an open heart and an open mind. And many of our sisters 
have simply just given up reluctantly and they have settled into a subordinate role in the church because of the text like the one we read today. But in his explanation, Paul does something really interesting in this passage. He actually goes to the beginning, and I mean the very beginning. I mean like the book of Genesis. Uh, The Genesis narrative tells this wonderful creation story whereby God made the woman from the man. She was taken from his rib, it says. It's very poetic, and it's almost like a song. But unlike the man, the poet says, she was not made from dust, from this world of ancient, from this world of, of violence. And in an ancient world of violence, the Jewish song that is being sung in the beginning said that she was the same. That when God takes the rib from the man, she was the same. And yet, she is a different expression of what it means to be fully human. She's not a slave. She's not an object. Now, the Hebrew text uses this interesting word. It uses the word helper. And we we sometimes think that that is like an assistant, but it doesn't apply assistant or servant or subordinate in any way. In fact, it infers the opposite. For the first time in history, the Jewish writers are singing a song and telling a story by which they are giving permission to embrace fully for the first time what it means to be woman. There is no nakedness and there is no shame. There's not somebody to put on a block to sell them so that they might work in the fields or to trade for cattle or, or, or to sell soap. For the first time in history, woman is equal, partners. And it's, this poem is evidence. Paul refers to as evidence for equal partnership between the sexes. And when he makes humans, he says this is very good. But you know the story, and the story is that the pain came when humans made a covenant with evil. And this is really interesting. Eve, the text tells us, was deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And the curse to the world comes because they get into bed with evil, and this is what we see today. Women and girls deceived and are dominated by men who many times know exactly what they are doing. So fast forward through the biblical text a little bit to the day of Jesus. Greek and Roman thought regarding women uh, was violent and oppressive just like it was when when Genesis was first written, and the Jewish opinion was this. uh, Let him be cursed who teaches his daughter the Torah. As men went to the synagogue, they they would thank God that they were not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So when Jesus begins his ministry, it is this controversial burst on the scene that no one had ever seen before. The ministry of the rabbi Jesus, whose followers said that he was God in flesh, led a social revolution. 
In Jesus, his followers all proclaimed that God was restoring the original creation. And this is why you and I come to worship. And this is why the people of God would come to worship. Because together in worship, we are anticipating the new social revolution called new creation. God is doing something new. And the baptized ones of God, well, we are the ones who are being made into what God fully intended us to be, male and female alike. All were welcome, according to Jesus, under his lordship. The poor, the broken, the abandoned, the outcast, and he had a special affinity towards women. We know that from Paul's other letters that that he believed in this God in flesh. He believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Genesis the beginning of new creation. And all of the Gospels we read from especially John and Luke emphasize Jesus' attention that he paid to women. Even Matthew, the most Jewish conservative of the Gospels, told a story whereby women had a significant and equal place in salvation history. And it comes in his very first chapter. Jesus healed women, ate dinner with women, bought them under his care, spoke to them, uh, put aside cultural values, gave them opportunities, encouraged them to become full-on disciples, not just second-class onlookers. He touched them, and they touched him. A woman was there at his birth, and women were there at his death. A woman was the first to preach the good news of resurrection to the world. And when he then, after his resurrection and ascension, he then pours out his spirit on the 120 in the upper room on Pentecost, men and women were empowered with boldness and courage to preach the gospels to all of the nations. It was the world becoming as God intended the world to be. And if we take Paul's words that we read today just at face value, then we're done. Amen? And we can continue to go on the way in which we have always been going on. But if if we've caught a glimpse of what it seems that's happening in the salvation story, and, and that it just might include us in new creation, well, then we need to lean forward and really, really look and study and listen to what Paul is saying. So reading 1 Corinthians is like listening to one side of a phone call that's like 2,000 years old, a 2,000-year-old phone call, okay? It only leaves us with parts of the story, uh, parts of the conversation, and and what we have to do is we have to do work to piece together what we don't know based on the things that we do. So we know this, that the church in Corinth is just a big, dumb mess. They fought about everything. And some scholars, scholars that I respect, have a theory that there was a group of women that had been baptized, and now were claiming their newfound freedom in Christ so that they didn't have to follow the cultural rules or the rules that the church established anymore. They said that their freedom in Christ was reasons to do things that they wanted to do. They could dress however they wanted, even if it was inappropriate, like not covering their head in worship. They could speak out, interrupted worship, teach when they didn't know what they were talking about, whatever the case may be. It seems, according to some of these scholars, that they they were acting inappropriately in worship. It it reminds me of the Geico commercial with Alexander Graham Bell, you know, where he's answering his new invention in the theater while people are trying to watch a play, and he answers his new phone. He says, no, you have the wrong number. This is number one. You must want number two. It's a funny commercial. (laughs) 
So if we read Paul in this way, as some scholars do, honestly, even ones that I respect, to be saying that a woman who is in the church without head covering, well, maybe it's like she's a prostitute. She might as well shave her head, it seems that Paul is saying, because she is a shame to the whole community. So we can infer that if this is the case, it's important then that you leaders need to get those women under control. Maybe, maybe that's the case. Maybe that's how we read this text. Maybe these scholars are right. Perhaps there were women causing trouble. Or maybe there's something else going on. Now, I'm just a pastor, okay? So you can take what I'm going to say next and you can throw it away. But I've been, I've been studying this. I really have been studying this. And I'm not so convinced that the women were the problem in this church community. Corinth was a terrible place. It was bad. It was the worst of Las Vegas, New Orleans, New New York City, and Hollywood all put together. Take the underbelly of those cities and you have Corinth. It was a male-dominated culture where ego and violence and passion ruled. In fact, the Corinthians had these sayings that, that, that they would say over and over to one another so that they could feed their most basic appetites. And, and they would take their bumper sticker sayings and their bumper sticker ethics, and as they entered the church, they would put them together with their new theological agenda. So there's some examples. Paul quotes the Corinthians. He says, you know what? You say, and this is one of the bumper sticker sayings that the Corinthians would say, everything is permissible for me, which means I can do whatever I want. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. He says, you know how you say that? That line you say all the time that you think that you have freedom from now that you've been, you think that you have extra permission now that you've been baptized? He follows it up with, everything is permissible for me, but you need to hear Not everything is beneficial. There was another saying they'd say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Another way to say that is live in the now, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Paul follows it up with this, but you need, that's something you say all the time, but you need to know the body's not meant for sexual immorality or sexual misconduct. It's, It's made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, we know also this, that the pervasive Corinthian, Greek, and Roman cultural values were bleeding into the church. Some of the Corinthians took some of the Christian teaching that they had received and were blending it with their own cultural and religious ideas to come up with teachings and practices that were antithetical to the ones that Paul had taught them when he started the church. This whole church was going off the rails. He was trying to get things under control. Were women really the ones that were causing the problems in worship? I don't think so. There are some scholars who believe that, but I am in agreement with the scholars that believe that the men were the ones who were causing the problems. They were the ones who were asserting their rules on dress codes and and rules of women in the church. 
this theory that it was the men who were the problem in the church, this fits in the creation problem that we have. This fits the cultural problem that we have. It fits the problem that's happening in our churches now. It fits, this theory fits with what Paul is trying to communicate in all of his other texts. It fits with what we know about his theology of new creation, and it fits and it works with what we know about the ministry of Jesus himself. Uh, Here's how I... Here's how I came to, to this conclusion, along with some of the, uh, along with uh, help of the other scholars. So in the Greek, there is, there's no punctuation to determine where quotes lie, to see who is saying what. So translators sometimes have to figure out how to, who's saying what, uh, so that, that when they're translating it, they can translate it into English for us so that we can understand it but some things aren't easily translatable. So this is for a deeper biblical study. Jump on board with a a theologian or a biblical scholar. Believe me, thousands and thousands of books have been written about this, and it seems like I read all of them this week. But but, But it makes a whole lot of sense that instead of giving commands, that Paul is actually being more rhetorical. He's using the sayings, that are common to the Corinthians, the stuff that they say all the time, and he's making commentary. Now, one commentator's translation, I think, is so appropriate and helpful. helpful. It goes like this. If we were to translate, it goes like this. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the traditions, teachings, just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to have understood that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man, but the head of Christ is God. In case you don't know it, that's his creation language. It is a reminder of the creation narrative and the intention behind it. Paul is attempting to remind the people of God's original intent. But then it's like you can put in quotes. So you say, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head was shaved. You say that. And Paul's response is, are you seriously saying that if a woman does not cover her head, she has to cut her hair off? And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have cut her hair or to shave it off, she should cover her head? Otherwise, she is not welcome into your fellowship? You are going to reject her? And then he says, and in your letter, you, it's like, it's as if he's saying these words, and in your letter, you've explained to me that a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man, for man did not come from woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. And then it's like, unquote. And Paul continues, so listen to me carefully, because you've missed it, fellas. What I'm saying to you is that in the Lord, the woman is not independent or separate from the man, nor is the man independent or separate from woman. In the beginning, they were, and now in baptism are, both wholly human, interdependent and in need of one another, perfectly created for one another, perfectly created for one another, and both have first-class status in this new creation. 
For a woman came from man, so also every single man since that time forward has come from a woman. And if you still don't get it, don't forget, ultimately, you men who have been causing problems, who think you're in charge, who think that women are to serve you, who to think that they don't have equal status, you are to remember that ultimately everything comes from God anyway. I've come to this conclusion that Paul was a visionary and he was faithful to the uh, the creation theology that we see in Jesus and we see in the new creation that that was implemented and brought to the world in Jesus Christ. The leaders, the men of the Corinthian church had lost sight of his original teaching and the very freedom they had experienced when they experienced their baptism. Paul was dealing with not troublesome women, but he was dealing with domineering men who had implemented their own oppressive practices for women that fit their ways with their own distorted view of the world. I love what N.T. Wright, who is my favorite theologian, says. He says, when we come together here in worship, the church, all of us anticipate how things are going to be in that new day. When, When a woman prays or prophesies, perhaps in the language of angels, she needs to be truly who she is since it is since it is to male and female alike in their mutual independence as God's image-bearing creatures that the world, including the angels, is to be subject. God's creation needs to be, uh, need, God's creation needs humans to fully, gloriously, and truly be human, which means to fully and truly be male, female. This is the vision that Paul has for those in the Corinthian church as they gather for worship. I want to tell you, with all the shortcomings in our denomination, and there are some, there are in every faith community, perhaps we can grow in grace and we can find a way forward. You need to know that the thing that I love most about this denomination that we are a part of is from its inception in 1908, women have had an important voice, were ordained, and were put into leadership on the very first day. They have held positions of authority. Their work has been invaluable. Women have preached the gospel, led initiatives to build hospitals and schools and orphanages. They have cared for the sick, buried the dead, and been a part of miraculous healings. In our 110 years as a denomination, women have held positions at every single level in our denominations. Board members, Sunday school teachers, treasurers, worship leaders, children's pastors, youth pastors, ushers, stewards, trustees, senior pastors, church planners, missionaries, deacons, elders, theologians, authors, professors, seminary and college presidents, district superintendents, and even the board of general superintendents, which, if you don't know it, they're like the popes of the Church of the Nazarene. (laughs) Here at the 8th Street Church, our local expression of new creation, four of our eight voting members on our church board, which is like a a board of elders, are women. We have three pastors who are women, two who are ordained as elders in the Church of the Nazarene, Pastor Mikhail and Pastor Andrea. Both have a Master's of Divinity degree, and one, Pastor Hope, our children's pastor, is pursuing ordination, and she has earned a theology degree. And our pastoral intern is a woman, Cassie Grimm, our worship leader today. 
And we have other women in our church that are trying to determine if they too are called to vocational ministry and we have women in our church who are leading at a variety of levels and should be empowered to do so because God calls women to serve him and his church. They are seen as equal partners in this thing that we call new creation. And I believe that a church that empowers women, that sees women as equal heirs, not just in theory, but in practice, that appreciates the sacred call of the ordination and of women, that when we do that, we are literally participating in the revolution of new creation that God has intended from the beginning, that the rabbi from Nazareth reestablished, and that a servant Paul called us to. Baptism, my friends, has freed us. It is new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Listen to these words from Paul as our, um, as our communion servers prepare to help us, to serve us. I read these words to you last week, and I read them to you again this week. Our old way of life has been nailed to the cross with Christ It's a decisive end to that sin-miserable life. We are no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included into Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included to his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. This is what our baptism represents. And you and I are invited into the way of Jesus, represented in ordinary things, things like bread and things like wine. Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, by those he came to save, 12 angry men, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, I want you boys to know that this is my body which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. This is an expression, an invitation to us all. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. You, my friends, are welcome to this table. At our church, we, we come down, we leave, our eye, we leave our row and come down the left side, uh, the left aisle with our hands cupped ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not believe that we take communion here. We believe that we receive it because all of this is a gift to us. Anyone who is open to this gift is welcome and invited to this table. We want no barriers, so I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. But my friends, when you are ready, I invite you to come.